And that's what I pray this morning as well, that when this meeting is over, that, the, that Jesus will linger with us somehow. That we won't soon forget what we've talked about. And we won't soon forget uh, the, the touch and lose the touch of God that, that he's poured out upon us. But that we'll carry that home with us and trust God to teach us how to live in his presence all the time. Praise God. As Brother Mike said, it's not just about coming on Sunday. It's not just about knowing Bible doctrine. But Christianity is Christ. Amen. Salvation is a person. And it's a relationship with that person. Right. He who has the Son has life. And if you don't have the Son, you can have doctrine, you can have church, you can have religion. But if you don't have the Son, you don't have anything. Praise God. We sense his presence here this morning, don't we? Oh, in different ways he manifests himself. Some feel a great peace. Others are filled with the love of God. Some are like a tick that want to explode. Uh, <laughs> and then there are... Sometimes we're just overwhelmed with a confidence that we're in his hands and he's with us and he's for us. Oh, God knows what you need and he knows how to show you himself and make himself real and precious to you. And it won't be the same for everybody all the time, but it's always Jesus, Jesus coming to us. And so I, we love him this morning and we have, we're glad that we could take time to tell him so. Praise God. Somebody explained this to me one time. They said, you know, he said, every, every year my wife gives me a Valentine's Day card, and this has been going on for many years now. And he said, you know, some cards she gets from the store, and they're Hallmark cards, and they look beautiful. They've got beautiful pictures, flowers on it, and the sayings, uh, I suppose, express how she feels about our relationship, about me. And he said, uh, I love those cards. I love that she thinks of me. Uh, and, uh, and she takes time to give me a card on Valentine's Day. She said, other cards are a little more fancy, a little more expensive. Helen Steiner Rice, she has these beautiful poems that she uh, puts uh, sentiments into, uh, into poetry, uh, something that he said I could never do, but she uh, does it so well. And, um, and sometimes he gets cards like that. He said, but every once in a while, my wife doesn't have a chance to get to the card store, or maybe she goes to the card store and she can't find a card that expresses what's in her heart. You've done that, right? You've stood at the, in that aisle for so long, trying to find the right card, and no, this is too nice, and this one, this one's not nice enough. Well, she said, so she'll make a card for me. Sometimes she'll draw her own picture, print something out the computer, and then she'll put in her own words how she feels. Nice. Now he says, <laughs> he said that I've gotten many, many cards over the years, over 30. I don't know where some of them are. He said, but the ones that she made, I still have those. They're under the stack of cards with the ones that my grandchildren make for me. He said, those ones are the special ones because they come right from her heart. No one else is saying it for her. Even if she agrees with what's being said, there's something very special when it comes from your own heart. I think of that when we worship. We sing these beautiful songs that somebody else wrote, and, uh, and they have the touch of God upon them for sure. And we can make them our own. We sing and we say, yes, Lord, I'm singing this song to you. This is exactly how I feel. This is exactly what I want 
you to do for me. This is exactly how I want to give myself to you. And as we sing those songs with the right attitude, as we sing them to Jesus, we're worshiping him. And we're opening our hearts and the Lord is coming down and filling us with himself, manifesting his presence. But then in between songs, I notice you do it as we do in our church as well. When we're not singing anything off the, off the screen. Or off the wall. <laughs> or off the wall. <laughs> but we just, we just close our eyes and now we put it into our own words. Now it comes from my own heart. Yes. Now when I, I say, thank you, Jesus, and I love you, Jesus, and I want you, and I adore you, and I worship you, and I think those are special times in the meeting when God's people, just from their own hearts, are just telling Jesus that they love him. And when you say, thank you, Jesus, he knows exactly what you're thanking him for. He knows what you've been through this week. He knows what you're facing right now. When you can praise him in the midst of that, that's very precious to him. And I can't speak for the Lord in, in, in that sense, but I think he loves all of our worship, but I think there's something very special about those times. Amen. And not everybody catches on to that. They get quiet and wait for the next song. But instead of getting quiet and waiting for the next song, Here's your chance to put it into your own words and let the Holy Spirit flow through you. And we ought to, we ought to take advantage of that. Yes. Praise God. Yes. And if the Lord should put silence on the meeting, we get quiet. Years ago, I had a stent put in. And when I was lying on the operating table, I figured the best thing I could do is nothing <laughs> and let the doctor take care of everything. I didn't try to help him out. I didn't tell him what I think he should do. I just got as still as I possibly could. And there he put his expertise to work, and I'm here to tell the story. Praise God. When, when we get quiet before the Lord, that's the time for the Lord to do just what he desires to do. He doesn't need our help. He doesn't need our suggestions. There are some things that God wants to do that you know nothing about. And so he puts silence on the meeting. And then he says, now get still. And let me operate. Let me reach into those areas of your life where no one else can touch but me. Where you need healing. Where you need deliverance. Where you need a revelation of myself. And we find that during those quiet times, Jesus does things that he doesn't seem to be able to do any other way. And he meets us in a very precious way. That's also something we want to learn. And then the other side of the coin is we need to learn to praise him. We heard that this morning from our sister. We need to learn to open our mouths and we need to learn to praise him. He inhabits those praises. Brother Mike said this morning that there are some things we need to do continually. We had a Bible study in our church not too, too long ago. I called it the always Bible study. The things that we should always be doing throughout our Christian life. And one of them was, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. And oh, some people haven't learned how to open their mouths and praise God. They're too self-conscious, but you know, it's not about self at all. It's all about Jesus. And 
So you get your eyes on him and you just begin to praise him. Tell him that you love him, worship him. We had a lady in the church one time. She said, I learned how to praise the Lord by listening to the person next to me. When they said hallelujah, I said hallelujah. When they said, I love you, Jesus, I said it. She said, after a while, I didn't have to listen anymore. The Holy Spirit took over, and she learned how to praise God. And, you know, I know as a young person, when I learned how to open my mouth, overcome my in, in, inhibitions, get my eyes off of myself, get my eyes off of everybody else, and focus on Jesus, and I began to praise him, God began to come into my life in a new way. I, I was totally changed when Jesus came into my heart as my savior. But another change came into my life when I learned how to praise him with my mouth and with all my heart. And so I would encourage you, if you haven't learned to do that, lift your hands, open your mouth, and just let the Holy Spirit anoint you and set his praises into your heart. You'll never you'll never be sorry that you gave him yourself like that. Praise God. Okay, so that's not my sermon. <laughs> but we did so much singing this morning that I'm cutting my sermon in half. Uh, that doesn't, that you have no idea how long it's going to be. But uh, just trust me that it's in half, okay? Second uh, Samuel chapter 11. Turn with me there, please. Second Samuel chapter 11. It's a very familiar story to us. But there's something in this story that I think uh, maybe we don't see so readily, and I think will be a blessing to us, I trust so. Praise God. Now, Brother, gave me, Brother Mike gave me this hands-free mic, and what I do, but I still stand behind the pulpit, right? I could actually walk over here, and you could hear me just as well, but I'm, I'm a creature of habit. Praise God. Did I say 2 Samuel 11? Okay. It came to pass after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David still tarried at Jerusalem. It says at the time that kings go to war, in another translation which I have here, it says in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab uh, with the king's men of the whole army of Israel to attack the Ammonites. Ammonites obviously were, Israel, were Israel's enemy, we read about them often in the Old Testament and the trouble that they caused the people of God. And, and uh, so this was the time when battles took place. It would make sense that battles would take place in the springtime rather than the dead of winter. Uh, easier for the soldiers uh, being out there in the elements to, uh, to survive and, and maneuver. But it says kings used to lead their armies into battle, and David was known for that. When you read some really exciting stories of David uh, leading his armies into battle, and uh, he inspiring them, and David was quite the warrior, wasn't he? And uh, he had the uh, power of God upon him uh, to fight, to help him fight the battles of the Lord. But uh, this time, David decided to stay home. 
Doesn't tell us why, why he wanted to take a little break, but it was one of the biggest mistakes that he ever made. You know, sometimes we serve the Lord for so long, we think that, well, every once in a while I can take a little break now. Surely the Lord will let me get away with this. I've been so faithful for so long. Oh, let somebody else do the praying. Sometimes older people do that. Let the young people do it now. I've prayed. I've been to the prayer meetings, and I, I've been to this. I was a Sunday school teacher. Now let the young people do it. Well, we have to make room for others to serve God. That's true. But that doesn't mean we should ever stop ourselves. And we have to be careful about that as we get older. We need to keep seeking God. David said, I will praise him more and more as I get older, not less and less. Brother Mike told us that prayer is something that we do every day for the rest of our lives. Reading the word of God and feeding upon his truth, we do every day for the rest of our lives as Christians. We seek him continually. And we need to ask the Lord, help us not to let up. You know, maybe you've heard these names, Brother Hans Walfogel, Brother Joseph Wanamacher. And I, I understand that they were walking together years ago. And uh, they were getting older. And Brother Wanamaker was telling Hans, if I remember the story correctly, he said, you know, Hans, I've been reading about the kings. And I've realized that as they got older, some of them got careless. And they stopped seeking God. And toward the end of their life, they fell into great error. And he said, I've been praying. I've been praying, Lord, help me. Help me to keep seeking you. Keep me faithful, Lord. Don't let that happen to me. The older I get, help me to seek you the more. Amen. And to praise you the more. And to love you the more. And, uh, and God gave him that grace right to the end. And I know so many people that as they got older, they just seemed to seek God more. We had a man in our Ridgewood church who uh, came to as many meetings as he could. But when he retired... He said, praise God, now I can get out to more meetings. Now I can seek God even more earnestly. We had a man in Canarsie like that too. And so, I like that attitude. Oh, sure, when you retire, you want to take a little vacation from time to time and, and uh, you know, slow down a little bit along certain lines. But you can use that extra time now to give more time to God and to his kingdom and his people. And so... David made a mistake by not going out to battle. Doesn't tell us why he chose to stay home, but as he did, it says, it came to pass at eventide, David arose from his bed and walked upon the roof of his house. And from the roof, he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired after the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, those roofs were not like this roof, you can imagine. They were flat, right? And David was out in the evening on his roof, and he saw this woman bathing in, in the other courtyard and got his attention, and he inquired, who is that woman, that beautiful woman that I saw? And so they, they made inquiry, and they found out that her name was Bathsheba, that she was the wife, the daughter of Eliab, and the wife of Uriah. It wasn't just a woman. This was someone's daughter. She had a father, mother who loved her. And she had a husband. 
whom she had given herself to, and he to her. They didn't just say, oh, this is Bathsheba. They said, this is Bathsheba, the daughter and the wife. But somehow that didn't uh, grip David at all. He was overcome with lust, and he just saw this beautiful woman that he wanted for himself, and, and so he sent for her, and, and as a result of their time together, she conceived and sent word to David, I am with child. Now, her husband was out on the battlefield fighting the battles of the Lord. Her husband, Uriah, was out in the trenches fighting for the honor of his king, David. And his king, David, was back home sleeping with his wife. And so when David found out that Bathsheba was with child, he sent a message out to the battlefield, send Uriah back and have him give me a report of how the battle is going. And I can't read the whole chapter to you or the next, but it goes on to say that Uriah came back and uh, he stood before the king and the king said, how is the battle going? And how's Joab, the commanding officer, and so on? And he gave him a report of, of their progress. And then um, he said, okay, now go home and uh, spend the night at home with your wife and we'll send you back soon enough. Well, David thought that he would be with his wife and that he could cover up his sin, that, uh, that they could uh, somehow give the impression that the child belonged, the child that was to be born was the child of Uriah. But Uriah did not cooperate. It says that he slept outside the king's palace with the other servants. And when David got up the next morning and found out that Uriah had slept outside, he called him to himself and said, what, what happened? Why didn't you go home? What are you, what are you doing outside? You should have refreshed yourself. You should have been with your wife and, and uh, had a good night's rest. And, and uh, Uriah said, oh, king, how could I go back into the comforts of my home and be with my wife when the king's soldiers are out in the field and they're, they're out in the cold and they're suffering and they're, they're sleeping outside uh, on the battlefield there, and I'm going to come home, and I'm going to enjoy the comforts of, of my, my home. Nothing doing. Well, David saw that this man was too loyal and that that wasn't going to work. And so he came up with another idea. He invited him for a feast. And it goes on to say that uh, uh, he called him, and he did eat and drink in verse 13, and he made him drunk. And at even he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but went not down to his house. David thought, maybe if I get him drunk, he'll cooperate. <laughs> and so they tried to gear him in that direction. Still, his loyalty was too great. He woke up the next morning, found out Uriah didn't go home at all. He was still sleeping outside with the servants of the king. And so David said, well, then we have to do something else. And so David gave Uriah a letter and said, Uriah, I have an important message. I want you to deliver it to Joab when you get back to the battlefield. Yes, sir. And so Uriah took this letter. Of course, he wouldn't dare open it. It was, it was uh, from the king to his commanding officer. But what he didn't know is that within that letter, 
David had told King jo, uh, t- told Joab, I want you to find the hottest part of the battle, and I want you to enter into that. I want you to bring Uriah with you, and I want you to step back and abandon him so that he is struck down dead. And so, Uriah was delivering his own death sentence, and he was doing it as faithfully as any servant of the king could ever do it. He considered a great honor to bring to be the one to bear this message to the king's commanding officer. Little did he know that it was calling for his death. And that's exactly what happened. They they had besieged the city, which means they surrounded the city. You know, when they besieged the city, sometimes that would take weeks, months, even years before the people in the city finally surrendered. They would cut off their water supply, no food coming in, no one going out. Eventually, people would begin to starve. All the supplies would be used up. They would either surrender or they would be weakened to a point where the uh, attacking army could overcome them. And so, it says that in one uh, attempt, they got very close to the wall of the city and the archers were shooting arrows down at them. And of course, Joab told his men to retreat and Uriah was struck dead. And then they sent word back to King David. Uh, The messenger was to tell them about the battle and and about this defeat uh, in battle there. And he said, "If if the king gets angry with you, about the defeat that we suffered, just make sure you tell him, and your servant Uriah is dead also. And so that's exactly what happened. The man came back and he, he, told, he told what had taken place. And, and of course, that was a foolish military move. And David, being a military man, knew that. And he said, what, what, did you do? what were you doing? What got into your head that you went so close to the wall when the archers were there on the wall? You don't do that. And then he said, by the way, King uh, Uriah, your servant is dead also. And then the king changed his tune. Well, what can you do? You know, one dies by the sword just as another. That's the way battles go. Okay, go back and encourage Joab to keep fighting. and, uh, And we're with him. Well, that's chapter 11. And then we're told that David, I suppose, felt that he had pretty well covered things up. Only one that knew about his sin was he and Bathsheba and, of course, God. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 28, 13, Whoso covereth his sin shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh it shall have mercy. If you cover your sin, if you, if you try to pretend that it didn't happen or it wasn't so bad, if you try to give other people the impression that you would never do such a thing, when all along you know in your heart that you have failed the Lord, you're not going to prosper. God's going to have to lift his blessing somewhere along the way on your life. But if you confess your sin and forsake it, the Bible says then you'll find mercy. David in Psalm 32, he says, when I kept silent, they believe that David wrote this psalm 
in referring back to the day, these days when he had tried to cover his sin. Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose iniquity is, or sin is covered. When I kept silence, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then he goes on to speak about acknowledging his sin and, and confessing to the Lord. But we get the impression there that before David confessed, he, he began to dry up spiritually. Uh, he says, I, I, I was groaning upon my bed, dealing with the remorse, dealing with, uh, with the fears of being found out, dealing with the guilt. We've all been through things like that, I'm sure. You try to cover your sin. You're always looking over your shoulder. And then we read in the 12th chapter that the Lord sent Nathan, the prophet, to David. And we know that story. Nathan appeared before David, and he told the king a story. Uh, if he would have told him directly, maybe he would have gotten a different reaction from David. But the Lord led him to go through the back door there. And so he told the king a story about two people that lived in the city. One was rich and owned many flocks and herds of animals. And then there was one poor family where the man only had one little lamb. And he said that little lamb was like a pet in the house. The, the children loved, loved to play with that lamb. It was like one member of the family. He said, but someone came to visit the rich man's house, and instead of killing one of his sheep and preparing dinner, he stole the poor man's one only lamb, tore it away from the family, and killed it and served it to his guest. And the Bible says David got enraged. Can't you see him standing up from, on his, from his throne? He said, that man deserves to be put to death. Well, that sounds like an extreme reaction, don't you think? <laughs> uh, and restore fourfold. You know, when you try to cover things, you overreact. There was a man one time in a Sunday school class, and it was a time when one of the TV evangelists were had fallen into sin, and it was not yet exposed. But this TV evangelist began to preach against sin so strong. And this man watching him said, you know, that man's preaching to himself. There's just these two... How do you, how do you say that? He's just too strong. He's just... Uh, He's um, too worked up. He felt there was something behind it. And it wasn't long before it was discovered that he had fallen into the very sin that he was preaching so strongly against. He was hiding behind that preaching. He was trying to give people the impression that he would never stoop to such a, to such a sin. And that's exactly what David did. I mean, who would ever suspect David of taking another man's wife and having the husband murdered when he is so righteous that he thinks a man should die for stealing a sheep. And then Nathan pointed at him and said, thou art the man. Wow. And then he, he began to explain to him what the Lord had revealed. 
David could have had any woman in the kingdom that he wanted. He was king. But he had to take Uriah's wife, the woman that he loved. And then he had to force himself upon her and then have her husband murdered. And David realized he couldn't hide it any longer. And he broke down and said, I have sinned. And then Uriah said, you won't die, even though you think out of your own mouth that that man deserves death. He said, you won't die. God sees your repentance. He hears your confession. He'll have mercy on you. He said, but there will be consequences. In this natural world, there are consequences that even though we're forgiven of God, sometimes we can't escape. If you murder somebody, you may be forgiven of God, but still end up in prison. If you have a child out of wedlock, you can be forgiven of God, but the child doesn't disappear. But the wonderful thing is God is with you in prison. He'll help you with the consequences. God will love that child and help you to raise that child. Whatever the consequence may be, when you give it to Jesus, Hallelujah. he'll be there to help you. Amen. Because he never leaves us nor forsakes us. Thank God. Praise God. And so, to close, it says that David then discovered that the child, after Bathsheba had the child, the child got very ill. And Nathan the prophet said, the Lord's going to take the child. That's one of the consequences. You're not going to have the joy of raising this child. The Lord's going to bring that child home. And so the Bible says that David just went before the Lord and he fasted and he prayed that God would have mercy upon that child. And he prayed and he prayed. But God took the child home. And the servants were standing outside the door. And they were saying, who's going to tell David that the child died? You tell him. No, you tell him. And David heard them whispering to one another, and he realized what had happened. And he said, did the child die? Yes, my Lord. So the Bible says David got up, he washed himself, and he went to the house of God and worshiped. And then he went and he got something to eat. And the... Um, the servant said, Lord, we don't understand. When, when, you, when the child was alive, you were fasting and praying, and, and now that the child's dead, you're, you just go back to normal and you're eating. And he said, well, he said, while the child was sick, I thought maybe the Lord would have mercy and raise the child up. And so I was seeking God and confessing and searching my heart. He said, but now that the child's gone, I can't bring him back to me. He said, one day I will go to where he is, but he won't come back to me. Isn't that a comfort to parents that have lost little children? To know that one day we will be where they are in the bosom of Jesus, and that he takes them to be with himself. And so, this chapter ends, chapter 12 ends with this. In verse 20, David rose from the earth, washed and anointed himself, changed his apparel, came into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he came to his own house and he ate. And this is where the servants question him. 
Verse 24, David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went uh, in unto her, and, and she bore another son, and they named him Solomon. Now they had another son, David and Bathsheba. I'm sure it must have crossed David's mind what's going to happen to him. Is the Lord always going to be angry with my relationship with Bathsheba? And the Lord sent Nathan the prophet again. Uh-oh, Nathan's at the door. But this time, Nathan said, you've called the child Solomon, but the Lord calls him Jedidiah. That name Jedidiah means beloved of the Lord. The Lord wanted David to know, David, no more fears. I love that child. He's yours. And I'm going to use him for my glory. And then in closing, it says that Joab fought against Rabbah of the children of Ammon and finally took the royal city. So this uh, besieging of the city had gone on for some time, right? If, if, if in most cases you're pregnant for nine months, we, we would imagine that uh, they, were, they had surrounded the city for over a year. And finally, Joab was able, he was just about ready to conquer the city. And so what did Joab do? He sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah and have taken the city of waters. Now, therefore, gather the rest of the people together and camp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called, be called after my name. He said, David, the city is ready to be taken. I want you to get the glory and honor for that. So you come. And you take the city, because if I take it, I'll get all the credit. But you're my king. We're fighting for your honor and your glory. And so it says that David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it, and he took it. And he took the king's crown from off his head, the weight whereof was a talent of gold with the precious stones, and it was set on David's head, and he brought forth the spoil of the city in great abundance. Picture that. David attacks the city. And finally, at the last moment, David comes in and conquers. And he takes the crown off of the king of Ammon's head. This beautiful crown of gold uh, with uh, precious stones. And uh, that's his trophy. He takes that and now wears that crown. Um, well, what's significant about that? Someone said, in the very place where you fail God, God can make you more than conqueror. Hallelujah. In that very place where David should have gone out to battle and, and conquered Rabbah, he failed. And one failure led to another. He said, but after a season, when, when David humbled himself and repented and allowed God to search his heart, then we see that God was able to give him the victory right there at Rabbah, where he had previously failed. And you know, we, we see that so often. We've heard that Jesus changes lives, and he does. Sister Donna got all excited, I noticed, when someone said, Jesus changes lives. Um, 
when I first came to Ridgewood, I remember meeting a couple there, and they were a lovely couple, and they sought the Lord so earnestly and came to meetings and were such a blessing. As I got to know them, they began to share their testimony with me. And I could hardly believe it. Some of them were drug addicts living out on the streets. And yet, knowing them as I did, there wasn't even a hint of that. Jesus had so transformed their life that you would have never even imagined that they could have lived as they testify that they once did. The transformation was so wonderful, so complete. And the very areas of their life where they were weak and they had failed God, they found victory in Jesus and they became more than conquerors through him who loved them and gave himself for them. And that's exactly what God wants to do for you. In those areas of your life where you have failed God in the past, in those areas of your life where you're weak, you bring that weakness to Jesus. You allow him to enter into it and he promises that when we confess our sin and forsake our sin and turn to God with all our hearts, that Jesus does not cast us away, but he receives us just as we are. And by his power, he makes us what he wants us to be. And we find that in those very areas of our life where we were weak and where we failed God, that's where we triumph. That's where the grace of God is most manifest in us. And that's where we uh, can be used to bring blessing to others. How many people in ministry, you see the ministries they're involved in and you find out that they're working in Teen Challenge helping others find deliverance from their drug addiction because at one time they were bound by drugs themselves. But they found deliverance in Jesus and now they're not just a conqueror. It's not just that they have been set free themselves, but they're more than conqueror because they're now being used to set many others free along the same lines. And maybe your problem was uh, of a sexual nature or or maybe it was dishonesty or something of that sort. But oh, when we give ourselves to Jesus and humble ourselves, he, he, he makes us more than a conqueror through him who loved us and gave himself for us, as the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 8. And so, what's your Rama? Where did you fail? Where did you get careless? Where are you not fulfilling as you once did or should be? Does God write you off? No. He waits for you to come to him. He waits for you to confess your weakness. Don't hide it. Don't pretend it's not there. But bring it right to Jesus and say, Lord, this is where I'm weak. But I'm weak, but I know you're strong. And Lord, I can't overcome in my own strength, but I need the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome in me. And Jesus, I just call upon you. Search my heart. Cleanse me. Deliver me, Lord. And fill me with your mercy. Fill me with your grace. And then, Lord, in this area where I had once failed you, let it be an area of my life where I bring you the greatest glory. Who can do that but Jesus? Hallelujah, and he's done it, and he does it over and over and over again. He's doing it here in this place. You're not just singing about being set free, but I know that many of you have been set free and are being set free, and so I want to praise God, and I want to give myself to him afresh and anew, and I want to say, oh, Jesus, make me, take me as I am. You've heard the prayer, 
and make me what you want me to be in body, soul, and spirit, no matter what the cost, for Jesus' sake, for his glory, so that you can be glorified in my life. Well, God bless you, and thank you for your kind attention. It's been such a joy to be here this morning and to worship with you. We've heard so many good things about what God is doing here in Fredericksburg, and it brings us such joy. I, tell, I share with my own church the way God has been manifesting himself here, and we all get excited and we say, Lord, do it for us too. Hallelujah. There's enough of Jesus to go around for everybody, and we appreciate your prayers too. God bless you all. Amen. Amen.